This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast the weekly show starring some of the most exciting thinkers in global culture. The QAnon conspiracy theory was surely the most bizarre development of the Trump presidency. But just how do anonymous posts on a message board employed mostly for racist memes give rise to one of the most dangerous movements in American history? Mike Rothschild is a journalist who's reported on the movement since its inception. He spoke to me about The Storm Is Upon Us, his new book charting QAnon's spread through US culture and politics. Mike, many of our listeners will have heard of QAnon around the time of the insurrection in the capital back in January. Many of the rioters were a part of that, including the man in fur and the horned helmet, who has on the front page of every newspaper calling himself the Q Shaman. But you have been following this outlandish story since the beginning. Before we get into the detail of how QAnon came to threaten US democracy, let's start with the basics. What is QAnon? The QAnon conspiracy theory is a cult-like movement that posits that a military intelligence team is using the image board 8chan to leak cryptic clues to Donald Trump's upcoming purge of the deep state that will be carried out by military tribunals and field executions. You could get a lot more complicated than this. You can go down any number of tangents and rabbit holes. But at the very core of it is these cryptic prompts called drops that are made on first on 4chan and then on 8chan that lead the way to this great world-changing event that will sweep away all of the bad people and usher in a brand new era of peace and prosperity and utopia. Now, that's what QAnon really was up until the inauguration of Joe Biden. And we're now at a point right now as we record this that QAnon really is in the midst of kind of reinventing itself. The believers still believe in this prophesized great change event, but the event itself is different. What was once a great sweeping away of the deep state is now the restoration of Donald Trump as president due to all of the fraud and all of the, you know, ballot dumps and, and the Chinese cloning of ballots and all of the, all of the chicanery that went into propping up the desiccated husk of Joe Biden as the president. Because what Q and Trump did for a year was pound this constant drumbeat of, the only way Joe Biden, the, the wrecked 
remnants of Joe Biden could beat Donald Trump in an election is if there was massive systemic fraud. Well, Joe Biden won. Ergo, there was massive systemic fraud. So that is really what the QAnon movement is now, is waiting for the deliverance of Donald Trump to be restored to office. So let's row back to the beginnings of this conspiracy theory slash cult slash movement. The idea of a storm coming to purge the uh, pedophiles and liberals and other anti-Trump elements on the, the Democratic left, this was all inspired by an illusion of Donald Trump's, a casual illusion. Can you tell us about that? In October of 2017, Trump had a, a state dinner with a, a bunch of high-ranking military officers and their spouses, and everybody's in their dress uniforms and in their ball gowns and the whatnot. And Trump is in, I believe it was the East Room, and he, you know, the cameras are clicking away, the media's taking pictures, and he says, you know what this represents? Tell us, Mr. President, the calm before the storm. Could be, could be the calm before the storm. And everybody is like, what is he talking about? What storm? What, what are we doing here? And of course, no one knows. Nobody that night knew. Nobody in the White House the next day knew. Mike Pence had no idea. The president's comms team had no idea. But the president just kept saying, this could be the calm before the storm. That idea of we're in the calm before the storm was picked up by an anonymous or a group of anonymous posters on 4chan, who a few weeks later began telling this story that the storm was not only a real thing, but that they were going to tell you exactly what it was. What the storm was, was a mass arrest of the deep state. And you would have tens of thousands of sealed indictments being brought against the worst people in Hollywood, business, popular culture. They would all be grabbed up, executed, and then everything would be great. And Donald Trump would be running this whole thing. And every you know bumbling mistake or leak from the Trump administration was actually... 5D chess to keep the deep state off their back from, you know, figuring out their plan and everything was going to be great. And then nothing happened. And then this movement just kept going and it kept waiting for this deliverance and it kept waiting for this great event. And they're still waiting. Who is Q? And by that, I don't mean which man or woman or group of people post as Q, but who is the character of Q that people follow? Sure. And I'm glad you made that distinction. The The idea of what Q is supposed to be in this storyline and the actual identity of the person who's hitting text in a box and hitting post, those are two totally different things. What QAnon believers think Q is, is a military intelligence team of 10 people who are serving at the elbow of Donald Trump, and they're working together to tell this story through Q drops, through tweets, through pictures, through decoding threads, through memes. They really believe that this group of, you know, highly placed, highly experienced military intelligence professionals is in the Oval Office or was in the Oval Office, sitting there with Trump with his iPhone, like crafting tweets and drops and putting them up at the same time so Q acolytes could compare them to each other. This is what these people really believed this was. What Q actually is, is probably just a couple of trolls who told a story that people really got into and then just kept telling the story. And the story got less and less convincing and more and more popular. And Q, being a group of senior military officials, chooses to reveal the secrets that he or they know on 4chan or 8chan, which are message boards 
largely comprised of racist memes, Japanese fetish porn, that sort of thing, right? Why why has this team of crack military operatives chosen to use 4chan and 8chan as their delivery mechanism? Well, that is a great question. Why would a movement devoted to ushering in the Christian apocalypse, basically, use this message board full of racism and trolling and horrible, horrible stuff? If you ask Q believers, they will tell you that places like 4chan and 8chan are outside of the liberal mainstream media's censorship matrix, that they can't, they can't get to places like 8chan. Now, never mind that 8chan actually was gotten to, was brought down for three months in 2019 and actually had to reconstitute itself as a completely different board because its um, security provider dropped it, wanted nothing to do with it anymore. So why would a crack military intelligence team use a message board that was beholden to one security company? Why would they set it up to be so easily hacked that a journalist who covered the 4chan beat could use the word Matlock and post as Q? They don't know. They will not answer that question with anything that resembles a reasonable answer. Everything's part of the story. Everything's part of the war. Everything can be rationalized and explained away as part of the plan. And that's really what Q excels at, is using these short little phrases to completely blast away the critical thinking skills of the people who believe it. So let's talk a bit about these cryptic messages or Q drops. There are thousands of them now. They're usually pretty vague. They refer to those in power, sometimes in a prophetic way and sometimes in a way that's too vague to really mean anything. Sometimes they have uh, an evangelical twinge to them. Can you give us a sense of the composition of a typical Q drop? What would we expect Q to sound like? There are 4,953 Q drops. I really wish I didn't know that number by heart. Uh, They were made starting in October 2017 on 4chan, and they ended in December 2020 on 8kun, which is the reconstituted 8chan. They are completely all over the place in terms of what they say, who their writing style, their content. Some of them are these long strings of rhetorical questions and sort of coded phrases. Some of them are just links to tweets. Some of them are uh, links to Fox News stories. Some are pictures that could have been taken by anybody at any time. Some of them go to dead links to videos. Actually, the last Q drop is a dead link to a YouTube video, which is perfect in my opinion. So the content of the drops is really all over the place. Some of them are actually really interesting and really original. They At one point, they spin out this whole story of a presidential assassination via submarine-launched missile that was supposed to have taken place in Washington, uh, the state of Washington. And then some of them are like incredibly repetitive. One is a, a video of an AC-130 gunship firing its weapons that Q posted, I think, seven different times. They are just all over the place, but they really get a lot more repetitive and a lot less interesting once you get into about the final year of the drops. You know, some some of them are, are sort of still kind of keeping the story going, but a lot of them are just content to get Q believers excited about stuff. And Q believers have built in their in their minds almost a tapestry of historical conspiracy theories, right? It seems to me that the, the QAnon conspiracy movement encapsulates so many different aspects of conspiracy culture and so many classic conspiracy theories that it's almost a meta-conspiracy theory, right? There's the anti-Semitic tropes 
of the Middle Ages. There's this idea of uh, adrenochrome, a drug harvested from children that turns you into a superhuman. That comes out of Hunter S. Thompson. How do all of these theories intersect? Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to strip away the sort of mysterious sheen that QAnon had, because when you're just coming to it and you're not you know, soaking in that conspiracy theory world for years. Everything looks really new. Everything looks really clever, but it's not at all. The component parts are actually very obvious once you strip away that social media newness. You know, it comes from scams from the 90s. It comes from the blood libel trope of the 1200s. It comes from the satanic panic. It comes from Pizzagate. It comes from just sort of pop culture ephemera that's been floating around for a long time. None of it is really new. It's just packaged in a way that seems new. And one thing about it that that is actually, I think, different than a lot of other conspiracy theories is the participatory element. In QAnon, you are not a passive watcher of what the string pullers are doing to you. You are a digital soldier. You're part of this secret war that Q talks about. So you can make memes, you can make videos, you can red pill your friends, you can decode these drops from Q. You play a part in fighting the secret silent war against evil. So what it does is it, it gives the believers a lot of work to do. There's a lot of busy work in QAnon. There's a lot of decoding things and watching really long videos and, and just things to keep people busy and not thinking about the mistakes and the contradictions because those mistakes and contradictions and failures are the same as really every other conspiracy theory that Q has descended from. Given then that this is all ridiculous nonsense, why do people follow it? And why do they participate in the gamified elements that you've just described? Yeah, people follow this because it really does provide something to them. QAnon answers difficult questions with simple answers. It gives you bad guys to fight. It gives you order in a very chaotic and very random world. There's a reason why it took off so much during the pandemic. Everything was very up in the air. Everything was very chaotic. Things were changing by the day. Nobody really knew what was going on. Everybody was affected. That is a petri dish for conspiracy theories. And so what happened was this already extant QAnon movement that had been growing for a couple of years was able to pull in people through social media via other groups, via other conspiracy theories. So people who were looking for those answers, people who needed somebody to blame for what was going on, would go to an anti-5G Facebook group. They'd go to an anti-Bill Gates Facebook group. That would lead them to the Great Awakening, which is a QAnon concept. I mean, it goes back before QAnon, but QAnon really grabbed onto that. And they would say, oh, Great Awakening, that sounds nice. I want to be part of that. And they joined a QAnon group. And suddenly you have these progressive people who are really into wellness and yoga, who would never think of voting for Donald Trump, who maybe didn't even consider themselves conspiracy theorists, but were always looking for something, looking for some answer, looking for some sense of specialness. They find QAnon and QAnon provides that to them. So what it gives people is that sense of belonging, that sense of being part of something that is bigger than your own life. And it eventually takes over your life. It pushes everything out and it becomes the only thing that matters to you. What's the difference between a conspiracy theory and an actual conspiracy? 
Sure, there are many conspiracies. I I go through this in the book. You know, one of the questions I get challenged with a lot is, "Oh, you know, are you saying there's no such thing as a conspiracy?" Well, of course there are. You know, there was a conspiracy to assassinate Julius Caesar. There was a conspiracy to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. The tobacco companies conspired together to keep the harmful effects of their products away from us. There's the Tuskegee experiment. That was a four-decade conspiracy to exploit black people for medical purposes. These things are real. Powerful people get away with things all the time. You know, that's the way our world works. Those are real conspiracies. I would never claim that those are fake. A conspiracy theory, however, is a theorized version of one of these plots. And it usually involves something that's a lot more complicated than is necessary, involves a lot of people being in on a lot of different plots. And it's only uncovered through internet sleuthing by people who never quite have the proof of what they're claiming. Real conspiracies have proof. They have documents. They have historical records behind them. Conspiracy theories have anything that their believers want to present as evidence. So there is definitely a difference between the actual real conspiracies that happen all the time in business and politics and the conspiracy theories that are endlessly debated on the internet. And you used this word at the beginning of the interview cult. (laughs) Um, Is this uh, a cult of conspiracy theorists that we're dealing with? It is very tempting to call this a cult, and it has a lot of cultic aspects. You know, it has the thought control. It has the classic idea of the thought terminating cliche that uh, absolves you of critical thinking about what you're going through. It has the jargon. It has the lingo. It has the in-group versus the out-group, and you're in the in-group, and the out-group is scary and hates you and thinks you're weird. It's different from a cult in a number of aspects as well, though. It doesn't really have a charismatic leader. You could say that Q was that figure, but Q was not a charismatic figure. Q was not telling people what to do. One of the whole things with QAnon believers is that they'll be like, it's the only cult that tells you to think for yourself. Well, first of all, nobody gets into a cult that presents itself as a cult. These groups don't say, we're going to tell you what to do and what to think. Nobody would join that. But Q is very thought controlling. It's, it tells you who is the good guy, who is the bad guy. Apostates are often singled out in QAnon. You know, people who are wavering about it are singled out on message boards, sometimes even Q drops. But Q themselves is not this charismatic leader. There isn't the codified structure to it. There's no financial aspect to it. So it's cultic in a lot of very important ways. But even the cult experts and scholars I talked to were really struggling about what to call this. It seems like a cult, but that word carries a lot of connotations with it that doesn't necessarily fit with QAnon. Anons have committed atrocious crimes even before the uh, the capital insurrection, though, right? Can you tell us about how people have been radicalized by QAnon and what they've gone on to do? It, it should be noted that I think a lot of QAnon believers are probably not going to take that step into real-world violence. I think a lot of them just find what they need for this online or in you know small in-person gatherings. But there have been a number of violent incidents connected to this. We've had multiple murders. There was the 
uh, shooting of these uh, Gambino family crime boss by a guy who wrote a big blue Q on his hand and said that he had evidence of sex trafficking rings on his phone. There was a QAnon-related child kidnapping that ended with the Q-believing lawyer in that case allegedly shot dead by a woman who also a Q-believer whose child he was trying to get back in a custody battle. There has been vandalism. There have been assaults. There's been domestic terrorism. And that doesn't even include what happened at the Capitol. There were probably about 10% of the people who have been arrested for the Capitol insurrection have some outward belief in Q or some outward endorsement of Q. So this is an inherently violent movement that is based around an extrajudicial purge of Donald Trump's enemies that ends in bloodshed. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all violent, but they all believe in something that is based in violence. And so I I really think that it gives them the capability of making that leap into violence at any time. Have you been personally targeted by Anons while researching and writing this book? You know, I I really don't get that much. Uh, they, They tend to have a very short attention span. They will say something really mean about you. They'll single you out. You know, sometimes if I write an article or I do an interview, they'll, you know, they'll start talking about, oh, that, you know, that creepy Mike Rothschild, he's part of that inbred banking family. What's wrong with this guy? But then they'll move on to the next thing. I've never felt unsafe. Uh, I've been trolled somewhat, but that's the internet for you. I I tell people that the amount of harassment and trolling I get is really nothing compared to any woman or person of color in any public facing job. You know, I, I realize that just by being a white guy, I'm insulated from a lot of the worst stuff. But I do get stuff, and I and I especially get stuff because of my last name, which I have no relation to the Rothschild backing dynasty. Uh, if I did, I would not be writing books about conspiracy theories. I'd be, you know, counting my paintings on my yacht. Uh, I, I would not be doing this right now. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Could it be that the QAnon movement is run by Russian trolls? 
That is a very popular theory. A lot of people look at QAnon and think that it's just so complicated and it's so popular and it's ensnared so many American figures that it it has to be a, a Russian active measure. It has to be a GRU thing. It has to be Vladimir Putin running this whole show. But it really is not. And in the research that I've done and the research and the writing that other people who cover disinformation have done, there really is no evidence that there's any particular Russian involvement in any of this. There was some early boosting by some uh, internet research agency linked troll accounts, but even that was really only about 10 to 15% of early QAnon tweeting in uh, early 2018. And all those accounts are long gone by now. I think what makes Q work is that it's really plugged into the culture of the people who believe this kind of stuff. It's plugged into conspiracy theory culture. It's plugged into the tropes of American evangelical culture. It's plugged into the three-decade industry of hating Hillary Clinton. Whoever wrote these drops really knew what they were doing to tap into those really uniquely American tropes. It doesn't read like Russian trolls spamming out stuff. And when Russia wants to do something, they seize on what's already going on in America. And if necessary, they just hack databases, dump their documents, and push journalists out windows. They're not messing around with cutesy codes on 4chan. That's just not the way that works. And there's a, there's a cottage industry around QAnon now, right? With people creating merch. They make films and post them on YouTube and elsewhere. It's a business. It is absolutely a business. There is an enormous amount of monetization going on in QAnon. It's not quite as bad now because of the social media crackdowns. But for a while, you had QAnon films being pumped out. You had a bunch of different QAnon books coming out. I write about this in my book. The The first major pro-QAnon book was this book literally called QAnon, An Invitation to the Great Awakening, that came out in March of 2019. And it went to number two of all of the books on Amazon. It was the second most purchased book on Amazon for a couple of weeks, and it was getting thousands of glowing five-star reviews. There are t-shirts, there are bumper stickers, there are beer cozies, there are any metal sculptures, anything you want that you can put a flaming cue on, you can buy somewhere. It's, it's a little harder now, but somebody is working on it and somebody will sell it to you. Are you able to estimate how much of the movement is purely cynical, it's just trolls who know it's all nonsense, uh, and how much is based on true belief? My estimation is that the vast majority of people who outwardly spout the iconography of QAnon actually believe it. You may get a few grifters in it who, who really just think it's a giant joke and just a big cash machine, but the vast majority of these people really do believe it. And you can tell by the interactions that they've had outside of Q. And one of the things that I did in the book was I traced the social media footprint of this big QAnon promoter who goes by the name Neon Revolt. In reality, he's this guy living in New Jersey who moved out to LA to be a screenwriter, didn't make it, blamed the Jews and blacks running the Hollywood industry because, you know, people of color have so much power in Hollywood and moved back to New Jersey, completely reinvented himself as a guru for QAnon, deleted most of his pre-Q social media, but some of it's still there. You can find some of it on the internet Wayback Machine. And this guy's posting way before the first Q drops 
is exactly the same as his writing as a Q believer. And I actually had people reach out to me and say, yeah, I knew this guy in a screenwriting class. He was just as racist and, and weird and conspiratorial then as he is as Neon Revolt. You know, this is, this is who he is. It's a small sample size, but I think it's a really good example of somebody who's taking the beliefs they already have because this stuff is way too rancid to pretend to believe it. it it's just too dark to do that. This is an example of a guy who is the same person now as he was then. He's just going under a different name and monetizing his conspiracy theory beliefs. How did the movement become a force inside the Republican Party? We've got Marjorie Taylor Greene, an open QAnon supporter in Congress now. Yeah, it took off really in 2020 because the mainstream GOP establishment really didn't do any kind of denunciation of it. They would equivocate. They'd go back and forth about, well, you know, we don't, you know, we don't believe that there are, you know, trafficking rings, but, you know, these people have a right to ask their questions and, you know, we don't want to shut down debate. Why do liberals want to shut down debate? Why do they want to censor people? We don't want to censor people. So you are not believing in the mythology, but you're not shooting it down either. You're not saying this is a violent cult-like movement. We want nothing to do with this. We want nothing to do with these people. If you believe in this, you are not a Republican, blah, blah, blah. Nobody did that. They were all too afraid of being primaried. They were all too afraid of losing these razor thin margins that they had in a lot of these swing districts, where if you push away even just a few thousand hardcore QAnon believers, you might lose power. And of course, nothing is worse than losing power. And senior members of the Trump administration like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn did openly endorse QAnon, right? Absolutely. 100%. They came to this very early on. They, you know, I don't think that they had any hand in creating it, but they absolutely exploited it ruthlessly. Uh, They still are. Michael Flynn has made a, a career now out of basically paying off his legal bills by going to QAnon themed conferences and giving speeches about how we have to take back our school boards and, you know, well, maybe it would be okay if there was a military coup and selling merchandise and selling T-shirts, selling QAnon branded gear. Roger Stone's doing the same thing. Steve Bannon has paid lip service to it. A bunch of Trump administration senior officials have done it. Trump's kids have paid lip service to it. They all denounce it publicly. They'll say, well, I'm not a QAnon. I don't know what QAnon is. I'm not a crazy person. But, you know, sure, there's a deep state and there are trafficking rings and sure, the election is stolen. And of course, vaccines are poison. So everything gets merged together and it's given an endorsement by these popular and powerful people in modern conservatism. What role did social media play in driving the growth of the movement? Social media played a a pivotal role in driving QAnon. There wouldn't be a QAnon without social media. In the pre-internet days, conspiracy theories, of course, still existed, but they were harder to find. You had to do a lot more work to be a conspiracy theorist before social media. You know, you had to find the right guy in the street corner giving out the pamphlets or go to the right gun show to get the hot new anti-Clinton tape. With social media, with Twitter, with Facebook, with YouTube, you can make a bunch of content really easily, push it out there. And if you're saying the right things, you can get a very large following very quickly and tell those people anything. And that happened over and over and over with these QAnon gurus. These people sprouted up out of almost nowhere. A lot of them had very, very minor profiles on social media, started talking about Q, started talking about the storm and the great awakening, suddenly became superstars in this world. And these social media companies 
did nothing about it. You know, we there was a story that broke when I was working on the book from the Washington Post about how Facebook did not take action against big conspiracy theory purveyors like Alex Jones because it didn't want to be seen as censoring conservatives too much. Well, look where that got us. They didn't do anything. And there were minor crackdowns in the uh, summer of 2020. And of course, QAnon believers just evaded those bans easily. They, they, it took no effort at all. It really took until after the Capitol insurrection for Facebook and Twitter and YouTube to finally crack down on this stuff and just wholesale ban a lot of these promoters and, and pull down a lot of these videos. But this stuff was up for years while Q believers were running around killing people. What can we do to bring people out of QAnon? It is extremely difficult to get somebody out of a movement like QAnon. The first thing is that they have to want to leave it. They have to find something in it that stops making sense and use that as an impetus to question the whole thing. And most of the time, they just don't do that. They just don't want to. QAnon is answering those questions. QAnon is giving them the community that they're not getting in real life. If you do have somebody in your life who is a hardcore Q believer, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, is it worth it to try to get this person out of this? Are they hurting themselves? Are they hurting somebody else? Are they costing themselves money, potentially their job? If they're not, the best thing to do, honestly, might just be to leave it alone and, and not get involved. You know, you present yourself as a person who they can talk to about things that aren't related to QAnon, but you don't want to talk about it with them. And if they try to talk about it, you're going to shut it down. And if that person is making you feel unsafe, if they have committed a crime, you are absolutely within your right to cut that person out of your life and walk away from them and never talk to them again. There is no requirement to rescue somebody from a conspiracy theory. But if they are wavering and if you do feel like you can reach them, what you want to do is present yourself as a person who they can talk to, who will talk to them about shared experiences, you know, happy times they've had together, things you've enjoyed together. You're not talking about Q. You're not talking about Trump. You're not talking about debating or fact-checking or debunking your way out of the conspiracy. None of that is going to work, and it's probably going to have the opposite effect. But what you can do is just start talking in very general terms about it once you feel comfortable doing that. You, know, you talk about the contradictions, the mistakes, the racism and the, the anti-Semitism on these places where Q is posted. How does that reconcile with what you believe? If you're able to keep them going, then you can really walk out of it together and really address the issues and try to patch the holes that QAnon was filling. But it's a long and laborious process. It's very hard to do. And I haven't seen it done that many times yet. I've talked to very few ex-QAnon believers who are really willing to share their experiences on the record because it's very embarrassing to them and they still feel pulled by it and they, they don't know what to do. So it's, it's possible, but it's very difficult. What would you like to see happen in order to limit the further growth of the movement as a whole and even row it back if possible? You know, I don't know if there is a way at this point to certainly not to run it back. You know, unfortunately, I think this is, this is out there now. This, this has snared so many people and its mythology has become so mainstream in conservatism that I don't know if there is a way to eliminate it. The actual QAnon that, that I wrote about that, that I've been talking about for years, that really is kind of fading out. There, there really is no more hope of the purge, the, the storm. 
QAnon believers have actually dropped a lot of the iconography of QAnon. They'll they'll tell you that there is no such thing as QAnon, that the media made that term up to make uh, conspiracy researchers look bad. Of course, that's not true. QAnon themselves use that term all the time. Like That's just revisionist history. But this is what they've been telling themselves. So the, the best hope that we have is, I think, to limit its spread. And I think we can do that now by really cutting off some of these new venues that it's going to. And what we're starting to see right now, and this is really just unfolding as we speak, is Q believers are taking their mythology to a local level. They're not running for national politics anymore. Because they're never going to win Senate races. They're never going to win hotly contested races in the House. Marjorie Taylor Greene won because her district would have been won by any Republican. She just happened to be saying the right stuff to catch on. But what they're doing now is they're showing up at city council meetings, school board meetings. They're running for very, very small local offices. Uh, One of the big early Q evangelists won some very arcane office in her county in South Carolina, 188 people voted for her and she won. These are the elections that these people can win and we can cut them off. We can stop them from winning those offices. We can stop their mythology from spreading. But unfortunately, getting these people out is going to be a much, much harder proposition because these battles have to be fought one-on-one. You can't large-scale de-radicalize people. You have to have a unique path for each person to get out because each person's path in was unique. Mike, it's been absolutely terrifying talking to you. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. yeah, thank you. This week's podcast starred Mike Rothschild and was presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. It was edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show, check out Hannah McInnes' interview with Julie Ebner on extremism and my conversation with speculative novelist William Gibson, both available on the How To Academy website or wherever you found this episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>